Very good. All right. Uh, question 13. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? The answer, since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you guilty, guilty in thought, word, and deed. Uh, there's things we should have done uh, that we've left undone. Uh, there's things that we should not have done that we've done. Um, and one of the reasons we gather here is to remember what you have done on our behalf in sending your son to die for us, that we might be reconciled to you. And we eagerly await uh, the celebration of the day that the Son of God rose from the dead uh, to set us free uh, and the first fruits of the world to come. And so help us to understand those realities that we are um, eaten up with sin, uh, that we have no hope other than in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Uh, I pray your blessing on Redeemer Church, that you would look after us, that you would bless us, that you would provide for our needs, um, that you would help us to uh, love one another, to love those in our homes, uh, to love those in our work, uh, and that we would especially love one another uh, in, in your household, the church. Help us to be uh, gracious and forgiving uh, and serving uh, and doing so joyfully. I uh, pray for uh, our city, Starville, Mississippi, uh, the students that are here at the university, that you would, um, uh, that your kingdom would come among us, that uh, people would come to faith in Christ, that you would bless the other, other churches in this city, the campus ministries, that they would faithfully proclaim the gospel, that they would teach the scriptures rightly. Uh, and if any are not, uh, that you would either uh, remove leadership or remove their influence. And so, uh, Lord, we pray uh, for healthy churches in this city that love one another, that love you, proclaim the gospel, uh, and look forward to your return. I pray you would also deliver us from the evil one. Lord, each one of us are vulnerable to do the type of things we think we wouldn't do, but we have a capacity for evil uh, that we underestimate. And so would you have us to be appropriately fearful of our capacity to sin and to cause harm to ourselves and to those we love? Uh, would you help us to be faithful in seeking you, that we would study your word, that we would be um, students who understand what you have revealed to us and who seek it out um, and who uh, are not naive or uh, overly simplistic or overly complicated, but just seek and love truth. Uh, and so, Father, I pray you would bless us today as we consider your word and as we gather together as a people to offer you the praise that is due your name. And Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Our scripture reading today will be from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Mark 10, 1 through 12. This is the word of God. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. 
And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of all creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Teresa. Okay. Um, well, uh, so let's say uh, before the service today, I come up to you and I say, um, hey, would you mind if I, if I bring you up on stage during the service? I want to ask you a few questions. Well, your, your first question would probably be well, what questions you want to ask. And I'll say, oh, don't worry about you. It's, it's just three pretty simple questions. I'm just going to say, uh, number one, what do you think about Donald Trump? Uh, number two, what do you think about how people are responding to COVID? And number three, what do you think about how people perceive race in America? And just share your thoughts on that. <laughs> You'd be like, you're setting me up. Like, those are no-win questions, you know? Um, and there's, there's a lose-lose situation. No matter what you say, uh, people will probably disagree with you. Because all, all three of these questions deserve a little bit of nuance. And so it would probably be impossible to, to, to say it so perfectly that no one took issue with you. And then there would be some people who just might would disagree with whatever you truly did believe. And so, uh, so you would say, no, you are setting me up and you're a bad person for doing so. Um, and so, so here's the thing is that, uh, you know, those questions are, are tough. And, you know, we probably all have a group of friends that we, where we can talk about this to where even if we disagree, it's kind of safe and, you know, they won't put you into this box. And it's good to have people you can have these kinds of conversations. You know, what do you think about this or that controversial issue? And you kind of sound off. And, you know, even if you land on different places, we're going to love each other at the end and we're good and it's not going to be a big deal. Um, but, but this isn't what was happening with Jesus. Jesus was being, was being asked a question about divorce, and, and that was the, the, the Trump-COVID race issue of, of his day in, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and when the, the Pharisees are asking him this question, they're not asking it in good faith. And you see in verse 2 that the Pharisees came up to him in order to test him. And, and we see this kind of testing happening with the Pharisees in other places in Mark's gospel. Uh, in chapter 8, uh, we see that the Pharisees were seeking him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And then in, verse tw- in chapter 12, uh, we see that the Pharisees were trying to, quote, trap him in his talk when they asked him about should they pay taxes to Caesar, where Jesus famously said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And so these Pharisees are, are consistently trying to test and to trap him. The other other place where this word test is used is in Mark 1, when it's Satan tempting or testing Jesus in the wilderness. So, so what we see happening multiple times in Mark's gospel is our people, Satan and the Pharisees, testing Jesus. And it's, it's often, or it's always theological, and it's always practical. Um, and, and so on a side note, is, is this will always be happening. I mean, from, from, from all of church history, all of your life, 
there's going to be theological controversy. What does God say about this issue or that issue? Um, that's always going to be happening. And, and that question will come up. At some, sometimes it will be in good faith, hopefully being the church family. This issue is coming up, and let's discuss it, and let's get settled on it. Um, or, or it could be in bad faith, where you're trying to be, um, someone's trying to trap you or test you. And, and good people will be led astray by the hot-button issues of the day. So an issue will come up, and it's the hot-button issue of the day. It's very controversial, and you're in or you're out. And this is of gospel importance. You know, where do you land on this? And, and that's not always the case. A lot of times it's a lot of nuance. Just like, well, what do you mean? you got to clarify terms and, and all that. And so uh, this isn't really where, where we're going today, but just as a side note, I just want to encourage everybody to study. Study the Bible. Read books. Read commentary. Read broadly. Uh, read different perspectives on different issues. Don't go into an echo chamber online to get your uh, viewpoint affirmed. Uh, and, and most importantly, test everything with the scriptures. Let that be your ultimate source of authority. And let me add to that, there is wisdom and safety with Orthodox Christianity. And what I mean by Orthodox Christianity, I mean the faith has been passed down from the first century where the, 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 the main things are the plain things, the plain things are the main things. And so anyway, we don't need to be looking for some kind of new idea. We don't need to rethink church. Um, we, we, you know, most things don't need to be rethought or reconstructed. Uh, instead, we need to be really good with what's been clear for a really long time, really good on the old truths. And there will always be hot button issues and they will always be twisted and taken around. And so we just need to study. We need to be students of, of the, the Bible, students of theology, so we're not led astray by whatever the hot-button controversy of the day is. Now, back to this question about divorce. Jesus is getting set up on this question. It's a lose-lose for him. Uh, if he was more um, liberal in his answer, uh, then the Pharisees and the religious people would be mad at him for being one of, one of those liberals. If he was more conservative— uh, which is where the Pharisees were, they, that actually could work for the Pharisees because the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus. But that could work for them if he gave a more biblical, conservative response to it uh, that you couldn't just divorce and marry and, uh, and, and remarry and all that. Um, and so the Pharisees thought, well, if he, if he you know, is public in that position, then he might go the way of John the Baptist. If you remember a few weeks ago, John the Baptist said that uh, King Herod uh, was, uh, should not have uh, married his brother's wife. That was sin. That ultimately led to John being in prison and ultimately led to him being put to death. And so the Pharisees were just like, well, if he gives a, a more liberal answer, you know, the, the religious crowd is going to hate him. And if he gives a more conservative answer, well, then Herod might, might put him in prison, might even kill him. So, so this question was not asked in good faith. They are traps. Uh, the question was about divorce and the controversy of their day, and, uh, and the, the Pharisees were hoping to leverage that to cause harm to Jesus. Uh, so, so let's look at what Jesus says, but, but here's what we have still. Even though it was a trap, we have Jesus speaking to divorce, and this is a, a relevant issue for our day, obviously, because I'm sure all of us uh, are connected in some way um, to divorce, whether we've been through it or have a family member or whatever. So, uh, so let's see what Jesus uh, has to say here about, the, about divorce. Um, but here's what I want to do first. First, I want to consider what Moses said, because Jesus uh, appeals to Moses, and then Jesus gives some additional commentary. So the two points or the two ways I'm tracking this is first, we're going to consider Moses and divorce, and secondly, we'll consider Jesus and divorce. So first, Moses and divorce. So the Pharisees approached Jesus 
ask, is it lawful for someone to, for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus said, well, what did Moses command you? And they said that Moses allowed a man to write his wife a certificate of divorce. And that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. You can turn there if you like. So let me read it so we know what the, the Pharisees are turning to. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs of his house. So the, the key phrase, the key, so, so that was what Moses said about the divorce. And the, the key word that was causing controversy in their day was that line, uh, if he finds some indecency in her. And so the question they were, at, they were asking is, what does that mean that they find some indecency. And there were two schools of thought here. There was the Shammai and the Hillel. Uh, the, the Shammai were the more conservative and the Hillel were the more liberal, with a, had a more liberal view. The, the Shammai school, which is more conservative, believed that, that indecency spoke only to adultery. That's what it was speaking to and that's what it meant. And the, the Hillel school, the more liberal school, um, thought it could mean all kinds of things. And boy, did they run with it. Uh, like they, like they, just whatever they could find to, to be an out, it was out. It was even if the food wasn't right. There was just, you had some kind of problem. And if you're married to a sinner, you're going to find some kind of problem, some kind of indecency. So all a man had to do to, uh, to uh, if he liked another woman, wanted to marry her, divorce his wife, he just had to find a problem. <laughs> Not too hard to find a problem with anybody. And so this was the issue that I think Jesus was speaking to. The, the, the Hillel's who would just say, just find anything wrong. If you want to marry somebody else, just find a problem, write a certificate of divorce, and you go marry whoever you want. And I think that is the issue that Jesus is speaking to. So, so the Pharisees asked if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Jesus asked what Moses taught them. They rightly quote Deuteronomy 24. And then Jesus says this in verse 5. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So the allowance for divorce in Deuteronomy 24 isn't a freedom to enjoy. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a sad exception for people with hardened hearts. So Moses, as God's representative, made an allowance for divorce. But Jesus says it's not supposed to be that way. Look at, back in uh, Mark 10, verse 6 through 9. Jesus says this, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in the beginning, God said that he made man, he said it's not good for him to be alone. And, and, and that is why to this day, when we are alone, before we're married, we daydream about the one, about meeting the one, about getting married. And God built this into us in the beginning, that discontent that a lot of single people might have before they find the one is built in. And that is why almost every movie has some kind of love story at the center of it. It's hardwired into us not to be alone, to be with someone, to be married. And, and God designed this not to be an, an on-again, off-again type of relationship, but the kind of relationship that sticks with it all the way to the end, or as the books might say, happily ever after. So, so that's God's design. So now let's shift and consider more what Jesus said about divorce. 
So, so Jesus makes the comment about what Moses said about divorce to a crowd. And then later, he's with his disciples at the house. And here's what he says in verse 11 and 12. He says, whoever divorces his wife <coughs> excuse me, and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, if we take this at face value, it seems that, that the, the, the door has been closed on divorce and remarriage altogether. And that Jesus is saying you should never divorce, never remarry. But like other scriptures, we need to study them in light of what the rest of the scriptures have said. We don't make our theology off of just one verse. For example, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32 says this. This is Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there's an exception here. Sexual immorality or adultery. If one spouse is unfaithful, then there's biblical grounds for divorce. And he makes the, the, the same exception in Matthew 19, verse 9. Now, now, some have argued that this exception in Matthew, because it's only in Matthew, and some argue the reason this exception is in Matthew is because of what we saw with Joseph and Mary. Remember that uh, Joseph was, when, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, they had not been technically married. They were betrothed, but they were not yet married. And he said that he was going to divorce her quietly. And so, before they were married, there was something in the Jewish system where they could actually divorce during that betrothal or engagement time. And so some argue that the reason this is included in Matthew's gospel is because Matthew has this issue with Joseph and Mary divorcing. And so they would say that the, that the divorce is only allowed during the engagement period. Um, that, to me, seems to be a stretch. Uh, I, think, I think that just shows... Uh, that someone who is engaged can, can be divorced in that system as well, uh, and that it doesn't just limit it to the betrothal period or the engagement period. Uh, Jesus doesn't seem to qualify it in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 to somehow just being limited to a unique season in the marriage process. Uh, so anyway, so, so I would say that that is a legitimate exception that Jesus gave, adultery, sexual immorality in the marriage and then we also have, again, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, we have what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So you might want to turn there if you want to look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're just going to look at verse 15. Then you can look at all of it to get a better understanding of it. Um, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, it says this, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. So Paul is addressing here when an unbeliever abandons a believer. And he's saying that the, that the believer, when they are left by the unbeliever, they are not enslaved. And what I would say, they are, they are, they are not required to stay in a marriage where the spouse has abandoned them. So a married couple should not divorce. That's not the design. But there are two exceptions where divorce could be biblical, and it's adultery and abandonment. Now, Wayne Grudem uh, has somewhat recently changed his mind about the interpretations of 1 Corinthians 7.15. So in 7.15, we see 
<coughs> excuse me, in such cases, uh, in such cases, they are, uh, they are not enslaved. And so the way we read, if you're looking at 7.15, it says that, uh, that if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so in such cases. And so the way that's traditionally understood is that in such cases, it's talking about abandonment. So in such cases as abandonment, they're, they're not required to stay in the marriage. They're free to divorce. But what Wayne Grudem argues is that in such cases means that what, what, what his argument is, is that in such cases, things like abandonment, things like abandonment or even worse. And so Wayne Grudem kind of has a broader view of in such cases. The conservative view would be that in such cases speaks specifically about abandonment and is limited to abandonment. And what Gr Wayne Grudem has done is he's opened that up to mean things like abandonment or as bad as abandonment. Take, for example, abuse, an abusive situation. That's an extremely bad situation like abandonment in such cases that they would not be enslaved. Um, I'm, I'm going I'm to circle back to this in a little bit too. But uh, and I should probably address remarriage here. Because, like I said, on face value, looking at our text today, it seems like divorce is not allowed and neither is remarriage allowed. That would be adultery. <clears throat> but what it seems to me is that Jesus is addressing this issue of people uh, taking the more, the, the, the more liberal view of finding some indecency and in marrying another. And so what they would do is they, all they got to do is find a problem with their spouse. And when they find that problem, they can have a divorce and marry another. And what Jesus is saying is, if you find a problem with your spouse so you can marry somebody else, that's adultery. And so he's condemning that. Um, and so I'm not persuaded that remarriage after divorce is prohibited here. I think what Jesus is speaking about in this passage is the way that people were divorcing and remarrying. He would say that is adultery. And that would obviously, if he says it so, it's so today. And so if someone's just unhappy and like somebody else and they divorce and remarry, then I would say that's adultery. Not because there was divorce or remarriage, because there, there's no biblical grounds for divorce and they just wanted to leave and marry someone else. And what Jesus is saying is that that's just adultery. So, so here's what is clear, is that marriage is designed by God to be a lifelong commitment. Verse 10.9, what therefore God is joined together let not man separate. This is a commitment that is not to be broken. But the scriptures do give two clear exceptions, adultery and abandonment. And this has been the most common view held by Protestants since the Reformation. This isn't anything unique to me or anyone else. This is the most common view of, 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 of Protestants since the Reformation. And there's going to be some variations of this. So John Piper, one of my heroes, holds a permanence view, meaning that, that, uh, that there's never grounds for divorce. And, and he sees, uh, and he makes a, a, a fair case for this, that he sees it as a picture of the gospel, and Jesus does, does not divorce the church, and so we should not divorce. He makes an argument, but to me, I, I don't, that's one of the, maybe the only places, I'm, I'm not sure, I, I'm, I'm in step with him there. Uh, Wayne Greedham, like I mentioned earlier, has a bit of a wider view of divorce with uh, 1 Corinthians 7.15 where he says in such cases can mean more than just abandonment. Um, you know, there's a sense where I, I follow his argument. There's part of it concerns me to where, you know, you can't always say there's a slippery slope. But to me, I, uh, there's some concern about opening, opening it up because uh, going back to what Jesus says, because the hardness of heart, 
I think people can be too quick to find any kind of reason uh, to make it seem like they are um, uh, okay to divorce and leave. Uh, many people will say that even if there is grounds for divorce, that you shouldn't seek the divorce, that you should take the higher ground and, and kind of communicate Christ to the church, the commitment there and forgiveness and all those things. A lot of people will say that. Uh, R.C. Sproul, interesting to me, he said that would not be a good thing to say to someone. If someone has biblical grounds for divorce, uh, he would argue that you shouldn't encourage them to stay in it because God has given them uh, clearance to leave the marriage. He, he said this about um, this, this verse in Mark 10. He said, we cannot take away rights Jesus gives to his people. Likewise, we sometimes say, okay, you're allowed to get divorced, but I think you should take the higher ground and stay. In that case, we are subtly pressuring the spouses by putting a guilt trip on them, even though God has given them clearance to divorce. And so, look, I, I read these three different views to say this is a, a somewhat complicated topic. Uh, some, some pastors and theologians I really respect disagree on this. But here's what, what we're, where we got to agree, and here's where all these people are on the same page. When we're talking about divorce, we cannot, must not do this. Well, I just think, well, I just feel that's off the board. <laughs> As Christians, we can't go there. I mean, we might think and feel right. We might be right, but we're not right the right way. And likely, whatever we think or might feel could be wrong. It has to be and can only be, what does the Bible say? So John Piper, on his permanent view, is looking at the scriptures and saying, the Bible says this, therefore, I conclude this. Wayne Greedham on the other side is saying, the Bible says this, therefore, I conclude this. So whatever your conclusion might be, whatever variance of these exceptions it might be, it must come from what the scriptures teach. And <clears throat> we must see divorce as a complete tragedy. It's never a good thing. And if it is a good thing, that just means it must have been really, really bad, right? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, Christians all regard divorce as something like cutting up a body, as a kind of surgical operation. Some of them think the operation so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit it is a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both your legs cut off than it is like devolving, dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. And look, one reason divorce is such a tragedy is that marriage isn't just something that, that we put together. You know, generally we think about it just like a guy likes a girl, a girl likes a guy, happy story, they get married, right? Sweet. And on the surface, that is what it is. I mean, that's what happened with me. I like Missy, she liked me back, let's get married. Uh, and it seems like that's how it plays out. But what we see in chapter 10, verse 9, it says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So God is the one ordaining these marriages. It's something that's God doing. And the idea that it's our doing, the couple's doing, is just an illusion. Because we, we can't see behind the curtain what's actually happening. But a marriage is something that God has put together. And so we must not tear apart something that God has joined together. And if it is to be done, it's only be done in the most extreme circumstances. And, and we know in, in Ephesians chapter 5 that what God wants to do with a marriage is to, to give a picture of Christ in the church, of the gospel. Uh, so, so marriage isn't just about being happy. We, we probably get married to, to, because we think it'll make us happy. But it's, it's more about emulating the gospel, loving each other, forgiving each other, not because they deserve it, but because they don't deserve it. Like the gospel showing unmerited kindness and the crazy thing is, that's the way to be the most happy in marriage. 
is to live out the gospel. And what if unmerited kindness was the way you viewed your marriage? Rather with, than being upset with how bad your spouse might be, and look, all of us have our fair share of complaints about how our, spice, our spouse might give us a hard time, but what if instead our goal was to show unmerited kindness to our spouse in spite of them, the way the gospel teaches us, that Jesus treats us? Then the gospel would display it in your marriage, and I guarantee you'd be a lot happier worrying about you showing unmerited kindness to your spouse than instead worrying about how they're treating you and how they're disappointing and failing you. And you, you got to understand, and we all know this on paper, but you got to understand that you will or you have married a sinner. The person you marry will be the one who sins against you the most. And it's not because they're uniquely bad. It's because of proximity, right? If, if, if you live with me, then I would sin against you more than anybody. It's just how it works living with sinners. So great grace is required for a marriage because the person you marry will sin against you in subtle ways, in blatant ways, and in maddening ways. No one can make you go crazy like your spouse. And there's nothing about your spouse. It's just, again, proximity more than anything. But we, we, we cannot, we must not leave just because it's hard. Sometimes marriage will be easy. There'll be those moments in the sun where it just seems like fun, sweet, and good. And sometimes it will seem so hard. But don't quit because it's something God has put together. You, you, you shouldn't have signed up because it'd just be fun. This is something that God has put together, and it's supposed to be a picture of the gospel. And so that means for you, the part that you're in control of is showing grace and unmerited kindness. If you're going to worry about something, worry about that. Now, what should you do if you find yourself wanting a divorce? Well, the, the first question you need to ask, if you go there, and look, I, I'm imagining in our church, most of us, our minds will go there at some point and at least contemplate. Even if we don't say it, we might think it'd be a lot easier without, you know, who around, right? And so we might get there at some point. So what do you do when you get there? Well, the first, one of the first questions is, is there grounds for divorce? Is, has there been sexual immorality, adultery, abandonment? And, and if that's not there, then divorce is off the board. Or, or something like abandonment is not there, then divorce is off the board. You can't just get divorced because there, there's no biblical grounds for getting a divorce because you're not happy. I've heard a Christian say, uh, no one here at Redeemer, but I've heard a Christian say that he and his wife talked, and this was in a good season, and they said, look, if either of us aren't ever happy, like, we'll split. We'll divorce. We, ultimately, we've got to try to be happy. That is, that is an, a non-Christian position. That, that, that is the view of the world that has infiltrated the, the church. The whole no-fault divorce is a, is, a, is a relatively new thing, came in in the 60s and 70s, and it is, it is normalized in the culture, and unfortunately, it's getting normalized in the church. But that is not how God has designed it to be. We stay married because God put us together, and your goal in marriage is not to be happy, <clears throat> but to be faithful in your marriage, to be the best spouse you can possibly be. Now, what if there is adultery or abandonment? Then the Bible does give you permission to divorce. You can divorce your spouse. But if that is the case, 
where there is a, you, there's biblical grounds for divorce. You want a divorce. What should you do? Well, the, the church family needs to be involved. The, the, the first line of defense would hopefully be the friends you have in the church where you would share, you're having, this is what's going on. This is what I'm thinking about. You'd be able to process it with them. Uh, and then uh, secondly, you would need to bring in the elders of the church because if, this, there, if there's a person who has been in adultery or abandoned their spouse, then they need to go under church discipline. If you're not familiar with church discipline, uh, years ago we told them this in 1 Corinthians 5. You can look up the message on our uh, website. Uh, but basically, church discipline, when someone is, is in habitual, unrepentant sin, they are removed from the church. And they are, as Matthew 18 would tell us, has, taught us, has taught us, to treat them as an unbeliever, meaning we wouldn't regard them as a believer, that they have abandoned the faith. And so they would need to come under that. And here's the thing. If that were to happen and the person were to repent, then they would come back into the church with open arms. The whole idea of church discipline is to free them up from sin and restore them to fellowship. And so that would be the goal we would have there. But that's not necessarily what, would, what, what is required in the marriage. If that, even if the, 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 the person repented, that they would not necessarily have to or be required uh, to stay in the marriage. That seems that there is an exception made where they could divorce. And, and look, whenever this stuff is done, it's done with heavy hearts and hoping the person would ultimately repent and turn back to Christ. And look, th this is a hard topic, divorce. Like I said, we're all uh, affected by it in different ways. All of us have been impacted by it somehow. And, and C.S. Lewis was right. It, it's more like a double amputation than it is a dissolving of a business partnership. It's, it's, it's traumatic. And so... Let me kind of end on a, what I hope would be a, a better note of encouragement. In, in John 13, the night before Jesus was betrayed, we, we read that Jesus had loved his disciples. And then the, it gives an emphasis and it says, and he loved them to the end. And so I want to have a picture in our mind because sometimes marriage can be so hard. You know, you're not getting along, you're in a hard season and it, and it comes and goes, right? And, and I think we need to have a view of, of the end. Ultimately, one of us will bury the other. And, and I think we need to have a vision. If it were me and, and Missy were to bury me, I would hope she would be able to, to take my cold, dead hand and say, he loved me to the end, to the end, his last breath. He was, he was committed to me. And if it was the other way around, and if it's Missy, I would want to take her cold hand and say, I loved you to the end. And look, this will be hard. It'll be difficult. But we have a Savior waiting for us who, when our eyes open to death, we will see and we will know he has loved us to the end. And, and try as we may to be a picture of the gospel in our marriage, we will always fail. We'll never do that. And, and the marriage, how it's supposed to be a picture of the gospel, it's a shadow. And, and it's never going to fulfill the vision of what the true gospel is. And we'll see what marriage really is when our eyes open to eternity. And so let's have that picture in our mind of persevering to the very end, till death do us part. And I'll just close by saying this. If you want to be happy in your marriage, 
Refuse to dwell on how disappointing your spouse might be. They will disappoint you over and over. Refuse to dwell on that. And instead, consider how to show unmerited kindness all the way to the end. How might your marriage best be like the gospel, the most like Christ and his church? And may God let the gospel shape our marriages more than anything else. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that marriage is a picture of the gospel. And we know that often it is a terrible picture of the gospel. Ungracious, unkind, works-based. We treat the other how we think they deserve to be treated. And it is a picture of what the gospel is not like. Would you forgive us? And would you help us to go back to the well of the gospel, drink deeply of your grace and unmerited kindness towards us, May we drink so deeply of that that we happily give that to others and especially our wives and husbands. In Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen.